So I want to uh, begin by, can you all hear me okay? Good back there? Good. I want to first uh, congratulate you on this uh, second full day of practice. Sadhu, 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 well done, well done, well done. And actually just looking out at everyone, it's a really beautiful view. A view of earnestness, sincerity, vulnerability, courage to, to sit with ourselves. It's, it's not easy. And then again, um, as one said, how wonderful it is to talk about things that are real. And to practice with what's real. In this sitting with ourselves, it, it, um, at times we can experience, uh, metaphorically, we sometimes speak of the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. Uh, Bhante Gunaratana, a Buddhist monk, he says that it takes, I love the, this word that he describes to practice, he says it's, it takes gumption to sit with ourselves. Gumption meaning takes guts, uh, courage, spunk. There's gumption to sit with ourselves, within our skin, flesh, bones, and being. And perhaps it's fueled by this desire to want to know oneself, to grow in understanding and wisdom. I mentioned earlier today, uh, in the context of sharing with others a sense of intimacy. And I love playing with words sometimes, and if we slow it down, it also says, into me I see. And that's what we're doing here, sitting in practice. Into me I'm seeing what's here. And quite Typically, in the first few days of retreat, um, we're not used to sitting this many hours, sitting and walking and not talking and uh, practicing in this way. And so we know that the first uh, couple days can, it can take some time to settle. So tonight I want to speak about some of the challenges that come up in meditation, as well as at times a little bit later to speak about the challenges of what hinders our practice as we meet and look at death, life. Bhante Gunaratana has a beautiful expression about practice when when we first begin. And he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you may come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. It gets better. He says, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just haven't noticed. So at least we're beginning to notice the workings of our own mind and heart. Can anybody relate to a mind like a shrieking madhouse, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless? Look around, you're in good company. (laughs) 
We're on a pilgrimage, and Sahara says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. So we're in a pilgrimage here about ourselves. Into me I see. And yes, it might be at times feeling like a mad house barreling down the hill out of control, but there may also be some insights, some rubies, some possibilities of developing deeper understanding. A phys, Persian poet, he says, not many teachers in the world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three to five days. You can just sit in your closet, that would do it. That means not leaving it, and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing either. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. Though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated because it's waking you up. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. And we can already hear just in people sharing little bits of rubies. I heard today from a few people in this practice this morning that Eugene offered about practicing as if this is your last breath. Some share that, you know, this, of course, can bring up a lot of apprehension, but others discovered that after the apprehension, which had something to do with the future, that in the direct moment in the body, in the mind, in the heart, there was a sense of relief or release. So perhaps there is a ruby buried inside here. But I think it's important, particularly at this time of the retreat to name and speak a little bit about what's known as the five hindrances or challenges that come up in meditation practice. And so this is a little bit of a list. It's interesting, in the Dharma teachings there's a lot of lists because these teachings were orally transmitted. Only 500 years after the Buddha's death, uh, they were transliterated. Pali is actually an oral language, not a written language, so it was transliterated into uh, Selene script. So it's found for remembering these teachings that put things um, into list categories was very helpful. So the five hindrances are, first is wanting or craving and not wanting or aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. Anyone think that's familiar? Been visiting at all? (laughs) Wanting, not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. A Dharma teacher, colleague, friend of mine, she often describes the first couple days of a retreat as like being in a swamp or in a garbage dump. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if it's quite like that, but so you might have a feeling that you're in a swamp or a garbage dump because this mind rolling down the hill, utterly out of control. Tired, restless, wanting, not wanting, filled with doubt. What am I doing here? 
for me as an early, you know, number of years ago as an early practitioner, I was actually relieved and I felt a sense of being normalized to find that actually the teachings right inside the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, in the fourth foundation, which is the dharmas, a collection of teachings to support awakening, is the teachings of the five hindrances right in the instructions for practice is teachings about how to work with what comes up in the practice. And that was very normalizing. Like, wow, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not the only one that is wanting and not wanting and restless and filled with doubt and sleep and so forth. And so I find that to be very helpful. And so within these teachings, within the fourth foundation of mindfulness, these teachings of the Dharma, these collections of teachings, are teachings on how to work with the challenges, factors of awakening that support deeper understanding and so forth. So I want to just unpack a little bit uh, each of these um, challenges. And they're speaking of challenges or hindrances, and why? Because they hinder, in some sense, the support of helping to steady the mind and the heart, to build our sense of concentration that is also supportive to grow with more insight, with more wisdom. So wanting mind is wanting something. Perhaps it feels good, it could be a new car, more food, sex, movies, shopping. Perhaps you're going around here and looking at a person's shawl and thinking, oh, I'd like to get that shawl. And Walking in the parking lot, looking at the cars, or maybe next time I'll get this car. So we're sitting here, huh, that bench that Bob's sitting on, that looks pretty nice. Maybe even there's a little romance happening, even though you've never even talked with this person. Maybe you've only seen the back of their head. We call it the Vipassana romance. The clothes people are wearing, so forth, the food that's being cooked. Oh, I want to get that recipe. So sometimes as we're sitting here, we're just perseverating about all the wants that we have. We're planning how the next retreat's going to be and how it's going to be, and we haven't even finished this retreat. And of course, when there's this wanting, there's the opposite. It's not wanting. It's too hot. It's too cold. The person nearby me is breathing too loud. I should have took the retreat upstairs. The belonging sounds much better than dying. (laughs) I knew it. I should have took the retreat. I wonder if I could just kind of leave or maybe (laughs) kind of just go up there and maybe no one will notice. It might be too late now. I'm here. What to do? The sense of aversion, the moment is not measuring up. I don't like it. And this too can happen while we're practicing, and it's very normal. If you're feeling like, gosh, I'm the only one that does this, that's, we, we all do. Whether we're new to practice, whether we're seasoned practitioners, there's times where we go through the turbulence, if you will, or the feelings of, uh, of these hindrances, and of course there's restlessness. It's, which is a very uncomfortable one. It's like crawling out of our skin. I'm wondering, has anybody ever died? I'm in a di- death retreat. I wonder if anybody died of boredom sitting in the bed. There's, this is just so boring. It's so restless. I'm like a pacing tiger in a short cage. Very uncomfortable. It's all this energy, but it's unwieldy. It's not harnessed and utilized. 
Anybody relate to any of these things? Yeah. You know, you look at around, everyone's sitting, looking good. I'd like to sit like this person, but if you went inside your mind and saw what was going on, you, you might want to stay inside you. <laughs> Sleepiness. It's old archaic English words that sometimes is referred to this in some of the literature called sloth and torpor. Tiredness, spaciness, fogginess, dullness. Not wanting to, uh, to be here. And, of course, doubt. I don't know if meditation is really going to help me. I don't really get this. What's this about just contemplating my navel? Silence, pain. What am I doing here? So we, we experience these from time to time. Sometimes we experience one, and sometimes it almost seems like we have what I like to call an M. H-A, a multiple hindrance attack. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than wanting and not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness, and having doubt, almost seemingly at the same time. And this is all normal, normal, normal. I really want to, you know, sometimes like, it's so important to name that because sometimes we feel so isolated and alone. It's like it's only me that this I can't meditate. I'm flunking out of the meditation retreat. So this is normal. And it can be worked with. And it can be worked with. The Dharma, there's a beautiful simile that speaks about this, of uh, the simile of the lake. And of course, with clear water, you can look from the surface and see all the way down. But when you're filled with a lot of wanting, it's like all these red dyes are obscuring so I can't see in. Or if I'm feeling a lot of aversion or not wanting, it's like the water's boiling so you can't see through. If I'm restless, it's like strong winds, choppy waters. I love the description for sleepiness, all this algae. (laughs) Can't see through. And lastly, doubt. Muddy water, can't see through either. And so we're working with these wanting and not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness and doubt. And um, there is some classical um, ways that the Dharma often teaches working with these that help to counteract the opposite. For example, if there's a lot of wanting, perhaps reflecting on impermanence, the brevity of life. There's a lot of aversion, hatred, anger, not wanting. We could practice its opposite of loving kindness and compassion. If there's a lot of sleepiness, we can try to make our posture more erect, open our eyes. Perhaps imagine that you're sitting on the edge of a 5,000-foot cliff in one false move. You're going to fall over. That'll keep you awake. A friend of mine likes to go somewhere out in the remote areas behind Spirit Rock where perhaps mountain lions are. She goes, this is where I I stay awake up there. (laughs) And one thing, actually, I I never mentioned this before, but I I do this, and you might not be able to see it as well as I do, but when I get tired, I like to look up to that ceiling. And somehow there's there's a, the way that this, the architecture here, I can just feel it like a brightness, a sense of brightness of waking up. So we can find ways of what supports us to to wake up. Doubt can be helpful with some sense of dharma teachings, inspiration, the noble, uh, the the 
triple gems of the te- of awakening, the teachings of awakening, the community that supports awakening, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So there's ways that we can help to develop a sense of inspiration, faith, confidence in the teachings. And to me, also, what I want to mention that I think is incredibly important is a powerful antidote. And this actually is coming from um, the factors of awakening that Eugene pointed to as well. And particularly the first two, which he also named, that I'm going to rename again, is the quality of mindfulness and investigation. And it's very different. And mindfulness-based stress reduction, we often talk about the differences between mindfully responding to a situation rather than reacting unmindfully reacting to a situation. So when we're unmindful and we're, un- we're lost in the reaction of uh, the wanting, not wanting, restlessness, so forth, we're just lost in that perseveration. But the moment that we become mindful, it's as if someone has turned on a light in a room that was once dark and I can't see anything, and all of a sudden I become aware, oh, here's wanting. That's a very different moment than the moment prior to not knowing that you were wanting when you were just lost in the wanting. So that antidote of awareness itself changes it because now, oh, here I am holding tightly. Now that I'm seeing I'm holding tightly, I can release the grip. Just like if I'm stuck in traffic and I'm holding the steering wheel so tightly and I'm, what am I going to do? And I'm all this muscle skeletal tension and I'm not even aware that I'm doing this. But the moment I become aware, I can begin to release the grip. So mindfulness plays such an incredible role in these, as an antidote for these challenges. The awareness itself, oh, here's anger, here's restlessness, and begin to investigate it. And mindfulness is this incredible quality that we all have. You don't have to be a Buddhist to practice mindfulness, to, to use mindfulness. And, um, it's this quality of being here. There's a beautiful uh, story I want to share about my son. His name is Bodhi. <laughs> and uh, we call him the bodacious dude. He just, he just graduated from the University of uh, Montana last week where we were there in Missoula. And um, he's a very energetic, he was a very energetic child. And um, putting him to sleep was, took some time because he was a flip-flopper. He'd be lying on one side, then he'd turn to the other side, and we'd be reading him stories, he'd turn again. And like, it, it, there was a whole ritual that went on for a long time. Well, one night, my wife was uh, putting him to sleep and reading him books and so forth. And after a lot of flip-flopping, he finally kind of settled and his breathing got kind of rhythmic. And my wife's going, yes, he's, he's going to sleep. <laughs> so she waited a while or more, and then she just quietly got out of the bed with him, and she started walking out of the room, and all of a sudden Bodhi jumps up and goes, hey, Mom, Mom! <laughs> and yes, Bodhi, what, 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 what's happening? He goes, Mom, you won't believe this. You won't believe this. And go, Bodhi, what, what, tell me what is it that I won't believe? He says, Mom, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm here. I'm here. This is my life. I'm here right now. 
<laughs> These moments that make up like this quality of awareness of being here. It's incredible. This ability that we have to be aware of what's here in the body, the mind, and the heart. And then there's the quality of investigation, which I love so deeply. Because I think innately, I am one curious bugger. I want to know and understand, what is this? This quality of investigation. And even in the teachings of the Dharma, I love the Buddha says in the Kalama Sutta, says, don't believe the teacher because the teacher says so, don't believe the books because the books say so, don't believe by hearsay, and so forth. He says, see for yourself with your own direct experience. It's called the Charter of, of Free Inquiry. It's, it's providing, it's, it's an, an inviting us all to, to, with our own sovereignty, our own investigation, our own nature to see what's here. It's such a beautiful quality. There may be times when perhaps we're within swimming in the seas of the, of the hindrances that all of a sudden we awaken, we become mindful. Oh, here's wanting. And then we not only become aware of it, but then there's this love of truth that arises, investigation, I want to know, into me I see. I want to feel into it. What is this longing that somehow it's not okay here and I want to be elsewhere? I'm beginning to look inside to gain some understanding, not through a, a cognitive figuring out in our mind, but that sense of feeling into this quality of investigation of the longing of what's here. And of course, as we begin to become mindful and investigate, it builds up our sense of energy, effort, and that brings a sense of more pointedness and we get kind of happy, there's a sense of getting into it. So these different factors begin to arise, gradually coming into these harmonizing or balancing factors. So these qualities of awareness and investigation are so supportive in turning in to what's here. This turning in. <clears throat> when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. I was living in Boston. And in the winter, we get a lot of snow. And I remember um, driving uh, in those snowy winters in the early years, um, getting in skids quite a bit in the snow and the ice. And every time you get in a skid in the snow, at least for me, it, it's scary. And um, I remember telling my dad about this one time. And he said to me at dinner, he says, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn your wheels towards it. And, and, I, and that scared me. What? I want to get away from it. You don't understand. I'm not going to listen to you. So I kept on turning away and kept on skidding out. For those of you that are driving in the snow, you know what I'm talking about. And um, I think I gradually reached the futility of turning away, and there was no other option but to incy-bincy little bit turn into it. And I'll never forget, I can almost even still feel it in my body because it was a body feeling. As I began to turn into it, I could feel the car moving towards straightening. And 
to me, I think it was a powerful teaching that I've reflected a, a, lot, a lot in my life that I feel like my father gave me a teaching, a Dharma teaching. And the teaching to me that I understand is that there's turning into the fear and you can find your heart. That's what it was about for me. I wanted to get away from it. I was scared and he was inviting turning into it. And lo and behold, it began to straighten out. Perhaps that was part of that ruby that Hafiz is talking about, the jewel of the Dharma. This turning in. Carl Jung writes, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who look inside awakens? Very beautiful. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? And speaking of that awakening, there's a very powerful teaching in in more of a poetic tone from Jennifer Wellwood. It's called Unconditional. And it's again this quality of awareness and investigation. So she writes, willing to experience aloneness. It's coming up for her, big aloneness. But willing to experience it, she says, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, this is a big practice, not easy, what she's talking about here. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. This turning in. And of course, we want to turn in gently, not to overdo. So we, may we use our discernment, our wise discernment of this turning in, taking care of ourselves. And of course, in this investigation about what hinders us in meeting life, meeting death, this is another really big thing. And this retreat, I really, deep bows to you coming in here and, and I, I want to meet, develop more intimacy with, with my death or the, or the losses. And is there a wiser way that we can learn to meet it, to reconcile, to, to somehow to make peace? Rabinath Tagore, an Indian poet, he writes that... Um, I was not aware of the moment when I first entered the threshold of this life, when I was born. But what was the power that made me open out into this vast mystery like a bud in the forest at midnight? (laughs) When in the morning I looked upon the light, I felt in a moment that I was no stranger in this world, that the inscrutable without name and form had taken me in its arms in the form of my own mother. And so even so, in death, I know that the same unknown will appear as ever to me. And because I love this life, 
I know I shall love this death. I love that he could say that. I love this life, so I know I can love this death. The child cries out when taken from the right breast of the mother, but then it finds a lot of consolation when it finds itself on the left breast. (laughs) Because I love life, I know I shall love death. We'll see. It's so funny, though, how we have all these different expressions about death. Um, This is 101 euphemisms, and I'm not going to read all 101. But that's amazing, like over 100 different little expressions, and some I kind of bolded, and um, some expressions, you're at room temperature. The big sleep bit the dust. Or from the queen, another one bites the dust. Cashed in, his or her, are they chips? Checked into the horizontal hotel. (laughs) Checked into motel deep six. Departed, you're taking a dirt nap. Entering the pearly gates, you're no longer counted in the census. Not going to shop at Walmart anymore. It goes on and on, there's a lot of funny. I guess for those of you that are video gamers, I never heard this word, it's called fragged. Anyone ever hear of fragged? Maybe no video gamers here. In Burma, I often see, they, they like to use the word the person, when my teacher died, they said he expired. Expiration date. <laughs> Kaput. Anyways, oh. <laughs> so whatever euphemism you want to use, the death rate has actually remained the same since the first people came on the planet, and that is actually one per person. It has not changed, and it will not ever change. Jane Kenyon writes in her powerful poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. There's a classical teaching in the Dharma that is a beautiful invitation and I often practice this daily try to remind myself of this. It's called the five remembrances from the Buddha, that I am of the nature to grow old and I cannot escape from aging. I am of the nature to have ill health and I cannot escape from having ill health. I am of the nature to die, I cannot escape from death. All that is dear to me, everyone I love, are of the nature of change. I cannot escape being separated. My deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. 
My deeds are the ground on which I stand. This fifth one, my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. So it's pointing to that perhaps we can begin to work with this practice and maybe transform our hearts. Faith Baldwin says that time is a dressmaker. It specializes in alterations. Mary Jane Block says, everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would, except your life. That almost sounds like the Zen, except your life. Everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would, except your life. A couple of months ago, I had to get a MRI for my prostate gland and Fortunately, I didn't have cancer. I have a very large prostate and actually had to have surgery to uh, create more um, volume, flow, and uh, less frequency. And it was very successful. But there was a time where like, I had to wait for the results of the MRI because my doctor said, I, f- I felt something a little bit irregular there and we want to rule out cancer. And so in those few days, um, don't know. And even though I like to think that I'm ready, it revealed to me quite clearly I'm not. (laughs) And um, it's very powerful. And yet, at the same time, I know that one day it will be otherwise. One day it will be otherwise. So I call these types of things dress rehearsals. How do I begin to meet my fear? Often it's said that there's uh, three things that uh, many people fear most about life and death. And that is one, physical pain, emotional pain, abandonment, separation, disconnection. And the third, the loss of identity. Who am I? What is this life? We come up against this both in life and in death. The fear of pain, the fear of abandonment, separation, disconnection, the f- fear of the loss of our identity. And it's very interesting that a beautiful um, description of the Arahants, the Arahants are the fully enlightened beings. The Buddha's uh, taught the Dharma and a number, many numbers of people became fully enlightened and they were called the Arahants. And the Arahant in Pali literally means the destroyer of the enemies. And what enemies? of greed, hatred, and ignorance. But they're also called, and I love this, the fearless ones. They've conquered fear, can meet life and death with an open heart. I aspire to um, lessen that fear and to meet life and death with an open heart. And I've always had this Wish. And again, I think it comes from my own sense of being curious. That um, I know some people like, oh, I just hope I'm asleep when I die, or I hope I'm somewhere else. But I, f- I would feel, I mean, I'm actually, to be honest, I have no control on what's going to happen. But if I could have some control, I want to be there. I want to be awake. I want to see what death is. No guarantee. 
again, I think um, from Tagore, like loving life, you know, maybe death is interesting. Peter Pan used to talk about death is the next great adventure. I love the spirit of Peter Pan. Death is the great adventure. So it invites us in this life, how do we meet our physical pain? How do we meet our emotional pain, our abandonment, our separation, our disconnection? How do we meet this sense of what I call the Bob? Eugene, Victoria, Janice. Who, who are we? So this is also a deeper question. These stories that I've identified with it that at times enslave me. To begin to see through these stories, begin to become aware that of the stories that we carry with us and not to negate those stories. These are the very stories that we work with to begin to perhaps become more free. So we can say in some ways this practice is so incredibly personal because it's dealing with our stories and our lives and it's incredibly impersonal. Neuroscientists cannot find even where the I is. They just call it like subsystems upon multi-subsystems. This I, ay, ay, ay. One Dharma teacher, you say, no self, no problem. But we have the self and this idea of self and, and this is our practice, sitting with ourselves recognizing time the stories that are enslaving us, the stories that, that we've believed to be so true. A couple of years ago, I was working, teaching a meditation retreat, and a person said to me, my mother has told me ever since I can ever remember that I wish I never had you. This is a profound wounding. She's an adult woman and still carrying this deep pain and During the retreat, she began to reflect upon her life and realizing that her entire professional career as a nurse and a nurse midwife, she had actually helped assist bringing thousands of babies into the world. And she began to recognize, you know, maybe I am okay. That these stories, though, that we've been told when we're very young, developing our sense of personality, we can become imprisoned without our awareness, and when we have our awareness, we can begin to see these stories and potentially begin to see through them. Another friend that, um, difficult upbringing, his mother committed suicide, his father was a retired submarine commander, and they had three boys, very tall and clumsy, in a small apartment. And my friend was particularly clumsy, And so the father used to give him a nickname. You probably heard of King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Have you heard that story? Yeah, well he was called King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. Terrible. At a young age, how are we to know any different? The times that we've been shamed. When I was a little boy, I used to love to go to my grandma's house and my grandma, she knew I liked peanuts and she'd put little bowls of peanuts in different places and I'd say hi to everyone and go get some peanuts. I still love peanuts to this day. And um, my uncle Sidney, he happened to notice this behavior of me coming over, there's Bobby, hi, and then him going to the peanuts. And you know, my, my uncle didn't know what he was doing but he began, when I'd come, he would have this announcement. He'd say, 
here comes the claw, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. And there's something about the way that he said it. I, I felt some shame. I felt like I didn't... I, and also, I don't have claws, I have fingers. And um, there's something about it that, that I, in time, I didn't go to the peanuts anymore. I didn't want to be shamed. These happening in early formative years of life that can begin to seed through our years of living and developing behaviors that harden and so forth. And so this practice is so liberating that we can begin to see these types of stories that enslave us. I can happily say that when I see a bowl of peanuts, I can go get them and I don't feel shame and I go, yum. So loving life and loving death. And, you know, if we didn't die, think about it. We'd have a big problem. You know, maybe five, ten, hundred thousand years of all the pizza and sex you want or whatever you like, it's going to get old. This is a beautiful story in The Hobbit of... Um, they needed to get, there was a big army, the evil army's coming, and they didn't have enough soldiers to fight the evil army. And so there was one hope that evidently whoever soldiers that ever um, were cowards and left the battlefield, they were condemned to a life of eternity. They could never, ever die. And so um, the king of the, of the good, good guys, if you will, uh, said, I need the help of these soldiers. And, and he had some magical powers. And he said that if you help me to win over this evil army, I will be able to grant you the gift of death. And so there was a big battle. They won. And there's this beautiful moment. I don't know, somehow it just touched me where the king anointed that they could die. And there was this, this, this like like this like such relief and grace. If we didn't die, we'd have a problem. And Suzuki Roshi says, if when I die, the moment I'm dying, if I suffer, that's all right, you know, because that's suffering Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will struggle because of physical agony or spiritual agony too. But that's all right. That's not a problem. We should be grateful to have a limited body like mine or like yours. If you had a limitless life, it would be a real problem for you. So we have that knowledge of it being limited. I love this from Charlie Brown. It's a picture. And Charlie Brown saying, Someday we'll all die, Snoopy. And Snoopy says, That's true. But on all the other days, you won't be dead. <laughs> what are we going to do right now? And who knows? Maybe as we come to terms with death, this is from a friend of mine in Australia. Her mother was um, dying. 
And this is literally her, it's the last thing that she wrote right before she died. Maybe I'll put it on the altar later so you can see it. And she says, it won't be long. I feel okay and not worried. I've had 85 of wonder, years of wondrous life. That's beautiful that one can come to that. I've had a wonderful 85 years. It won't be long. I have a lot more, but I'm going to stop here. (laughs) Just listen to the crickets for a few moments. So from the, the Sudhimagga, the path of purification, it says, as though huge mountains made of rock so vast, they reached up to the sky and were to advance from every side, grinding beneath them all that lives. So age and death roll, roll over all, the warriors, the priests, the merchants, the craftspeople, the outcasts, the scavengers, crushing all beings, sparing none. And here no troop of elephants, no charioteers, no infantry, no strategy in the form of spells, no riches can serve to beat them off. This is how death should be recollected. And we practice. The end from Sankapa. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body, it's yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious 
than the rarest of gems. Making peace. May all beings dwell with peace. Thank you for your attention and heart and um, some walking practice and coming back for the last sit. Thank you. And I'm going to be here for a while, so um, don't wait for me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.